Thanks for clicking on this podcast. My name is Paul Hertner from American Century Investments, and I'm here with Cleo Chang, Head of Investment Solutions here at American Century Investments. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Paul. Give me your sense of the state of the debt market in various sleeves around the world. As many of us still remember from 2008, um, household debt was one of the trigger points that led to the great financial crisis. So I think it's always important to keep in mind how has the debt load grown over time. So over the last 10, 11 years, sort of using 2008 as the beginning period and looking at where we stand today, sort of beginning 2019, we can see the various debt segment has actually grown quite differently. From a total global debt estimate perspective, back in 2008, we were looking at about $180 trillion of total global debt. Today, sitting here, sort of first quarter 2019, we're looking at roughly $250 trillion. So we've definitely seen a continued growth of debt, but uh, sort of in the sort of 1.6 to 1.7 multiple from where we were 10 years ago. And not all of those increases are created equal. Exactly, exactly. So let's look at household debt, since that's what you know we're all familiar with. When we look at household debt, we've seen household debt grown by about that amount, 1.6 to 1.7 multiple. Student debt has been something that we've been talking about a lot in the mainstream media. Student debt have actually grown from about 600 billion in 2008 to about 1.4 trillion. So when you do the math, that's about a 2.4 multiple over the 10 years. So compare that to household debt, we have actually seen a faster growth of student debt, which I think is very much in line with what we've been hearing in the mainstream. How about when we look at corporate debt? Corporate debt actually sort of tail two worlds. When you look at financial institutions, so the banks and the like, the debt has actually st stabilized around the same level as it was in 2008. So we've seen maybe a small five or 10% growth on the debt level for financial institutions. For non-financial institutions, however, I think a lot of companies has really tried to take advantage of this low interest rate environment and their debt has grown much more significantly than financial institutions. By our estimate, it's grown about 1.6 to 1.7 multiple from 10 years ago. So when we take a peek at government debt, what is that looking like in that timeline? From 2008 to today, a lot of government got involved in quantitative easing, QE. And part of a QE requires government to put a lot of liquidity into the marketplace. And therefore, a lot of government had to take on additional burden of debt to make that possible. So government debt has grown about 1.8 multiple over the last 10 years, from about 40 trillion up to close to 70 trillion. So that's on a global footprint. That's how we see uh, government debt. And from that group, one country stands out, that's China. In 2008, our estimate is there was about $7 trillion of Chinese government debt. And today, there's around $40 trillion of Chinese government debt. So when we do the math, it's almost a six times multiple over the last 10 years. So we can definitely see a different pace of different countries picking up additional debt uh, to, to their debt load. Is that a cause for concern on China? For some people, that's cause for a concern. Um, but I think there needs more time to see how this all plays out. As you take on that much more debt, the debt payment 
that the country is responsible does increase uh, in a significant way and the economy has to find a way to be able to afford those debt payments. How should an investor synthesize what you're saying here about these various buckets of debt all over the world? I think no different than any household or consumer. We should always be looking at our productivity or our earnings power versus the amount of debt that we're able to afford. So I think that's a simple math, no matter, no matter you're looking at an individual, a household, a country, or on a global basis. How do you take this information and invest? How do you, how do you take what you've just laid out and be a smarter investor? I think when we look at the amount of debt that's been issued, the amount of debt that's available in the marketplace, one of the things that always uh, alerts us is to look at how the interest rate environment has been evolving over time. And one of the things that we, we've spent a lot of time analyzing is the shape of the yield curve and whether the yield curve is inverted, how it's got inverted, and what does that mean to the future of the marketplace. And what do you think it means? So when we look at the inverted yield curve, I think it's very interesting that there's actually two ways the yield curve can get inverted. One way is called a bear flattening. That means the short end of the curve actually rise much faster than the long end of the curve, which causes the yield curve to invert. The other way for the curve to invert is actually called a bowl flattening, which means the back, the long end of the curve drop much faster than the front end of the curve, and that causes the yield curve to invert. So even though we're talking about the yield curve inverting, it's actually really important to understand how the yield curve became inverted and because they could imply different things into the marketplace. Especially media pundits. Do you think that pundits put too much emphasis on a yield curve inversion? Because there's been so much talk about it over the past now roughly a year. Yield curve inversion I think is a very indicative data point. Um, but I think there's a lot of context behind the inversion of the yield curve that needs, that needs to be and should be analyzed carefully before using that as uh, one of the inputs to your forecast. Um, I think yield curve inversion over the last 10 recessionary cycles, inverted yield curve has been one of the most predictive observations, but that's not to suggest that there's necessary causation to the recession that we've observed in the past 50 years. Essentially, not all yield curves are created equal. Not all of them come from the same place. Sometimes they're an indicator of a recession on the horizon, and sometimes they're not. Mm -hmm. So what do I do with this information about a 210 yield curve inversion or a three-month, 10-year yield inversion? I think when a yield curve invert, it's definitely a, a signal that something is changing in the economy. Right? And since this latest three months and 10 year inversion happened really because the 10 year rate dropped much faster than the short term rate, I think it speaks to the fact that globally speaking, we're still in a very low rate environment. Looking at the 10 year treasury around the world, German Bund and the Japanese government bond are still yielding negative on their 10 year treasury. The UK 10 year uh, gilt is yielding barely at 1%. So the U.S. Treasury yielding today at 2.4% is still uh, much higher than the rest of the developed world. So you know earlier this year when the 10-year was yielding close to 3%, 
we were even more of an outlier. So I feel like this is just the U.S. Treasury, 10-year Treasury yield coming into more of a neighborhood range uh, in this globally low rate environment. If you look at the 30-year, you're not talking about a huge amount of the overall yield curve that is affected by this inversion, right? It is a very good point that we also need to look at not just the inversion, but how much of the entire yield curve, which spans from three months all the way to 30 years. We need to take a look at how much of that entire curve has inverted. So it's not just about the yield curve being inverted. Uh, it's as important to look at how much of the yield curve is inverted. So when we look at the recessions in the 70s and 80s, the entire curve from all the way from three months to 30 years, that entire curve was inverted. When we look at the last two cycles, one in the early 2000s, and then obviously the one in 2008, roughly 70 to 80% of yield curve was inverted. Sitting here today, about 40% of the yield curve is inverted. So that's also another very important data point that needs to take, be taken into consideration. Why is it not? I don't hear, I, talking to you here today, this is the first kind of context that I've gotten in terms of inverted yield curves. I haven't read about it in the journal. I haven't really read about it on, uh, you know, on Bloomberg.com. I haven't seen it on Bloomberg TV, CNBC. Why aren't people talking about these intricacies of that yield curve? I think yield curve itself and the inversion of the yield curve can be a very complex topic. I think it's easy to look at a point in time or two points on the yield curve and try to make sense as to why the yield curve has the shape or the slope it does. But I think there's so much history and context behind what leads to the shape of the yield curve, whether it's upward sloping or inverted, that I think it really has a lot of information for those who are willing to spend the time to study it. Cleo Chang, American Century's Head of Investment Strategies, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Paul. The opinions expressed are those of American Century Investments or the portfolio manager and are no guarantee of the future performance of any American Century Investments portfolio. This information is for educational purposes only and is not intended as investment advice. Investment return and principal value of security investments will fluctuate. The value at the time of redemption may be more or less than the original cost. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. References to specific securities are for illustrative purposes only and are not intended as recommendations to purchase or sell securities. Opinions and estimates offered constitute our judgment and, along with other portfolio data, are subject to change without notice.